Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 15, 2020. The share IDs for Friday, March the 13th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Big Book Study, 14,252. That's 14252. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,254. That's 14254. This morning, A Vision for You presents a new experience. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, an inward rearrangement that actually transforms us. We have a profound alteration, a new experience in our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards the world around us as a result of our new spiritual condition. The result of the 12-step process is change, a spiritual awakening, a new experience. We are changed in the way we think. We are changed in the way we feel. We are changed especially in the way we behave. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once guiding forces of our lives are cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions, a completely new set of ideas, and new attitudes, a new experience begins to dominate us. We have been taken out of the world of selfishness and self-centeredness and into a spiritual way of life, certainly with new awarenesses of our world around us and a new experience in life itself. Joining this morning is Becca R., a recovered compulsive overeater from Kentucky. Becca R. is dedicated to living the 12-step way of life and is eager to carry the message of recovery to all of us today. So welcome to the line, Becca. Hi, Leah. Thanks for your service, and good morning, my brothers and sisters in recovery. I am so excited to, to have this opportunity and to be here and uh, my heart is racing, and so I'm going to ask you guys to just get quiet with me for a minute. Uh, this is actually the practice my sponsor and I do before ever uh, speaking, and she calls it just bringing in our connection. And so it goes like this. We inhale all that is good, all that is true, all that is pure. And exhale all that is not good, all that is not love, all that is not true, and all that is not pure. God, please help me to set aside everything I think I know about myself, the steps, my spiritual path, and you, so that I can have a new experience with myself the steps, my spiritual path, and especially you. Amen. Thank you, guys. So when Leah asked me to do the special edition, I was so honored and knew immediately that I wanted to share um, 
something that was a, a, a big part of my recovery, which was coming from another 12-step fellowship and having found a relationship with God and still dying from the disease of compulsive overeating. I had a lot of pre-fixed ideas about my spiritual capacity, and I want to share that with you because what I've found through the process and through working the steps with a sponsor and being recovered, I have had a new experience. My name is Becca, and I am a compulsive overeater, recovered, anorexic, and bulimic. I put down my foods and my ingredients and began working the steps as outlined in the big book of AA on February 1st of 2018. To tell you my story of transformation, I must start with the beginning. I was introduced in the, in the year 2000 to the steps after an intervention took place for me and I entered the world of recovery in the 12-step programs. I'm from a small town in Kentucky both my parents worked and I was the third of four kids. I have great memories from my childhood. To the outsider looking in, I don't think anyone would have pegged me as being the kid who would grow up to be an addict or an alcoholic. But as so often happens, life on life's terms, a saying I often hear in the rooms of recovery, I experienced a culmination of particular events which created the perfect storm for my disease to manifest. Growing up as a middle child, I often found myself feeling misunderstood and overlooked. I had an older sister who excelled academically, and an older brother who was an athlete and popular with all the girls. Then there was me. I never felt like I fit into my family. I can remember one night even going to the extreme of sneaking into my parents' room while they were sleeping and searching aimlessly for my birth certificate that my siblings had convinced me wouldn't be there. I felt out of place and like I didn't belong. It was then that I began to notice my body. It was shaped different from my sister's, where she and my brother had lean, skinny bodies. I was rounder and chubbier. Knowing now as an adult, I see myself and I know bodies come in all different shapes and sizes and the variety in a developing kid is so diverse. My grandfather had my brother and I over for a week one summer when I was probably around 10 years old. He owned a small convenience store across the street that sold bait and tackle, as well as deli sandwiches and such. My memory of this time is so ingrained in me. I had wanted an ice cream Snickers bar from the convenience store and instead of asking my grandfather for the money, I took a dollar out of his wallet to go to his store to buy myself that Snickers bar. After some time had passed, my grandfather pulled me aside and point blank asked me if I had stolen money out of his wallet. I lied. I lied over and over and over again. No, Papa, I didn't take anything out of your wallet, I said. I remember him trying so hard to get me to confess. And eventually, he just let it go. I refused to admit to my wrong, and any other memory from that trip were erased. That's what the disease does to me. I lie, I cheat, I steal. 
My elementary school years are full of fond memories with friends and family. Although I struggled occasionally with the drama of being a prepubescent kid, navigating through that time wasn't all that memorable. In middle school, I tried out for the seventh grade cheerleading squad and was heartbroken when I didn't make the team. I had idolized my older sister, who was an amazing cheerleader, and her petite stature sent her flying up in the air as the star of the show in my small eyes. When I didn't make the team, I was heartbroken. I worked so hard for the following year, going to private gymnastics coaching so I could be better prepared for the next year's season. It was a hard time for me as many of my friends were on the squad and now shared a common bond that I didn't. It was a hard year, but my work paid off. And when the tryouts came along the next year, I made the team. But what's so memorable was the chain of events that followed. In my eighth grade year, I began to struggle. Things at home were chaotic, as one can imagine, with three teenagers and one preteen. I began drinking and experimenting with drugs. I was a very precarious girl and began to use my body and sex to get what I want. My parents could see the writing on the wall as my out-of-control behavior progressed and the consequence of my actions had little to no effect on me. My eighth grade year of school, I awoke in the middle of the night when my older brother Aaron told me that our older sister had been in a car accident and that it was serious. Both my parents had rushed to the hospital and us three kids waited until morning to find out that the car wreck had left my sister in a very bad shape. I can remember going to the hospital later that day. We were ushered into a small waiting room separate from the large area we had arrived initially. My mom was frantic. Being a nurse herself, she knew the procedure to give bad news to loved ones often took place in a more private area. I could literally feel the foundation of my upbringing in my small town being crushed. My sister survived the accident, but it was years of work and therapy. She eventually recovered from her traumatic brain injury, and I'm happy to say that I can see God's handiwork in her life. Following the months of her accident, I was left with very little guidance at home. Both my parents were consumed with hospital visits and the acute recovery process involving my sister. While they worked to get her better, I continued my decline into alcoholism and addiction. I began using drugs and alcohol as often as I could and going to any lengths to feed my addiction. The things I held dear to me, cheerleading and being on the team, they became time that was taken away from my need to numb with the drugs and alcohol. I eventually quit the cheerleading team that I'd worked so hard to get on, and my friends changed drastically. I began to use manipulation in all my relationships and taking from everyone around me. Around this same time, a scandal was revealed. My perfect mom had been having an affair. It was revealed to me at school, a byproduct of being raised in a small town. When confronted with the allegations, she admitted that yes, she was guilty and soon she moved out of the home. My sister, who was still very fragile from her accident, went with her. Although today I know my mom would have taken me too if I had asked. I was so full of bitterness and anger and hate that I cut all ties with my mom and assumed the roles of the mother to my, both my brothers and my dad. During this time, both my father and I were succumbing to alcoholism. 
His heart was broken by losing the love of his life, and I gave myself every excuse to be out of control. Things got worse before they got better. I started having interactions with police. I found myself in very peculiar situations, situations that a girl like me had no business getting into. My drinking and drug use was escalating, and I found myself continuing to raise the bar of what I thought I would never do. I'll never stay from my friends. I'll never snort anything up my nose. I'll never do this. I'll never do that. Needless to say, I did all of these things and continued to spiral out of control. You'll see these same patterns came up when it dealt with food as well. My bottom came out out after a rough night of drinking and drugs. I was accosted by my mother while driving around town one early morning. She told me the gig was up. My car was now uninsured, and if I didn't go park it at my dad's, she was going to call the police. I went and parked the car and was left by myself, and the panic that ensued me left me wanting to die. The next thing I remember, I was being admitted to the hospital, and my stomach was being pumped. The following days, I was informed that I had two choices, go to rehab or become a ward of the state until I turned 18. Obviously, I chose what seemed to be the easier, softer way. And within days, I was on my way to a treatment center that specialized in the treatment of youth and families. I did my 28 days there only to discover that my aftercare recommendations were to go on for further treatment for a long-term program before returning home. I finished the aftercare program and returned home to start a life in recovery, which has been a constant since. I've now been sober for 19 years, and although the depth of my involvement has fluctuated in the different seasons of my life, I've always been tethered to AA and 12 steps. But my experience that I was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and dying of the disease of compulsive overeating, and here's that part of the story. I was always aware of my size and constantly comparing it to others around me. I know now that I suffer from a condition, BDD, body dysmorphia disorder. It's characterized by a preoccupation with one or more perceived defects or flaws in my appearance. Others don't see them. At some point during the course of this disorder, I perform repetitive behaviors like mirror checking, excessive grooming, skin picking, reassurance seeking, The preoccupation causes me clinical significant distress and impairment in social, occupational, and other areas of functioning. What that was like for me was binging and purging. I would buy entire Baskin-Robin cakes knowing I was going to eat the whole thing, not over the course of a week, but instead the course of a day. Hitting the many fast food places and ordering for many people, not just me. Buying and preparing food to take to certain occasions and ending up showing up empty-handed. I lived in a cycle of starve, 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 binge, purge, and then it would continue. During college, I was diagnosed with ADD and started taking a medication that affected my appetite. While it helped me to make it through college, it also appeared to be the one thing I'd searched my entire life for. I took several years and my weight stayed I took it several years and my weight stayed stable although the insanity in my head and my heart was just as apparent as ever 
The big book tells me on page 31, in some instances there has been brief recovery, followed always by still worse relapse. I was crazy. I knew that I wanted to be a mom more than anything. And when I met my husband and fell in love, I knew that opportunity would be along sooner rather than later. I came off the ADD medicine and my appetite returned. Planning a wedding had me feeling all those old, familiar feelings of self-loathing and body dysmorphia from my younger years. So the dieting was back with a vengeance. The binging and purging returned, although I had to get creative now since I was sharing a living space with someone else and trying to keep my dirty little secret a secret still. This is when I slowly made the transition into exercise bulimia. I thought it was okay. I started going to extremes with exercise. I became a distance runner. I started attending Bikram yoga. Everything I did was to the extreme. Well, I got married, moved away from home, and got pregnant within a matter of months. With the pregnancy, I felt as though, again, I had arrived. Now is my opportunity to eat like I always wanted and be okay. But that wasn't the case. I withdrew from my 12-step support within AA, telling myself that I was only going to be in the city I lived in for a year as my husband finished some schooling. At this time, I had about 10 years of sobriety, and I can say now that I definitely had a chip on my shoulder. My pregnancy was awful. I gained nearly 50 pounds when I was induced to delivery due to complications at only 31 weeks pregnant. My daughter was born, and I found myself bargaining with God to let her be okay. It felt so similar to the prayers of my alcoholic days, shallow and desperate. But the little baby made it, and she's a healthy nine-year-old today. My next best diet discovery was breastfeeding. All the pregnancy weight came off, and when my daughter was nearly two, I decided it was time to wean. My biggest motivation for nursing my baby was weight maintenance. Weaning my daughter ended up being a great time to start going to the gym every day. I hated that there was a max on time you could use in the child in the gym daycare. They only gave you two hours a day. What seemed like a healthy place for me to be ended up being another master that my disease took the form of. At this time, I wasn't throwing up often, but I would still use it as a crutch should I eat too much at any given time. The weight started to come back. I exercised more, going to CrossFit in the mornings and then hitting the gym all before my husband would even be awake. Still utilizing the two hours of gym daycare each day, I was wearing myself into the ground. This really made it hard to see that self-will wouldn't work in recovery. I did all the diets, weight watchers, intermittent fasting, eating every two to three hours, eating once a day, counting macros, trying keto. One week I'd be a vegan. One week I'd be eating like a heavyweight champion. There was always something new to try. But then something happened. It was a moment of clarity. My daughter was about two, and I was in the bathroom throwing up, and I saw her little hands poking under the door, and she was calling out, Mama, Mama. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I love this little girl more than anything in the world, and my disease was robbing her of her mother. The big book describes on page eight, no words can tell 
of that loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quickness, quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. My disease had become my master. I asked for help similar to Bill. Fear moved me enough to begin seeking help. But I didn't get here still for several years. I began therapy, and more importantly, I started to talk about my dirty little secret. My bottom line after entering therapy was I will not throw up no matter what. There was minimum accountability with food and exercise, and I can see now that I was still running the show. I thought I still had power. After a year in therapy, I had modified several of my compulsive behaviors. I stopped weighing myself every day and I had minimal relapses with binging, but I still found myself unable to feel free from compulsive eating. I knew of OA and I had faith in the steps. So I made the decision to leave therapy and began attending meetings a couple times a week. There was some recovery and I latched onto a woman who shared a story with depth and weight about using the big book to recover from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I thought that's great. That's great you did that, but you see, I've already read that book. I'm good. Just tell me how to eat and be satisfied and not get fat. During this time, my husband and I had started the efforts to have another baby. We were met with month after month with no sign of pregnancy. After a year, we sought out treatment from a reproductive endocrinologist and began the IVF process. We attempted two rounds of IVF and both resulted without a pregnancy. Although the doctors could never reason why I wasn't able to get pregnant, again, I believe it is the result of the extreme exercise bulimia I participated in all those years. I was going to OA meetings and thought I was abstinent as I was no longer purging or consuming any obvious sugar. In my new town, there was only one OA meeting a week and I attended it regularly. And I can say it was very much a dieting with group support. I do recall a visitor coming and sharing at one time about a phone meeting, and I just brushed it off. I was sinking. My marriage was harder, and the infertility left me feeling tremendous shame and sadness. Then I had my Ebby moment. I received a call from a fellow I had met in meetings where I used to live. She said she had my number from a previous We Care list and asked how I was doing with my recovery. I don't think she remembered me at all, but I was, but I saw she was going to any lengths to stay abstinent, and on that particular day, it meant going through old contact lists she had saved from months prior. Was it odd, or was it God? I remembered her here, and there was something about the message she carried the day that she called. It had depth and weight. On page nine, when big Bill talks about seeing his old friend Eddie, he says, the door opened and he stood there fresh skinned and glowing. I could hear the changes in her over the phone. There was something about her voice that conveyed that something had happened to her that was different. I told her I thought I was doing okay. And she responded by asking if I was abstinent. I paused and I recalled the night before when I hadn't consumed an entire kale salad that I had prepared for an event. I drove home from the event, eating the salad with my bare hands, desperately seeking that sense of ease and comfort that the big book talks about. 
No, I told her. I don't think I'm abstinent. She started to share with me about the meeting she had began listening to on the phone and shared the podcast links that had really helped her. The phone call ended, but something had shifted inside me. Over the next couple of days, I listened to some of the suggested podcasts, and I began to wrap my head around the idea of entire abstinence. I called her the next day, and we discussed sponsorship and working the steps. We had a plan, and I was ready. That night, I attended a church function and brought that kale salad that I shared previously. I called her the next day with my firm resolve to do something I've never done. And maybe, just maybe, I could get something I've never had. That's when we started. We started talking every day with the first week looking at the tools of the program. She encouraged me to prayerfully look at food plans and began to list, and I began to list my red light foods and behaviors. Some of the things that were on my list of behaviors were eating fast, snacking and grazing, restricting in the morning to overeat at night, being obsessed with apps like MyFitnessPal, using laxatives, eating healthy too much volume, eating pretend food like cauliflower pizza or protein muffins or waffles. I even had a recipe for protein ice cream. Next, I made a list of red light ingredients, and this was a little tricky because as a bulimic, I can eat everything. There were several fruits on my list as well as other things I would add to my binge, knowing it would help the binge food come up easier. There was obvious sugar and white flour, but I'd been living in such a diet mentality for so long that I rarely kept these things at home. My obsession with artificial sweetener was something I'd never considered before. Thinking that calorie-free meant it was a safe substitute, but I wanted a new experience. And so I was willing to let go of those too. For me, this was diet soda, unsweet iced tea with tons of Splenda, my go-to drink when I was out with friends, protein bars and protein powders, my favorite sugar-free syrup that I would smother just about everything with. I made my list and discussed it with my sponsor, and then I let them go. The next step was picking a plan of eating. Again, it was suggested that I seek through prayer on this matter. Wanting a new experience, I chose one I would have never wanted. It was straight out of the Dignity of Choice pamphlet, three meals a day with nothing in between, weighed and measured. I thought to myself, I can't do this. And when I shared with my sponsor, she agreed, no, you can't do this. You couldn't do this, but God can. She was, so there I was, I began to ask God every day throughout the day to help me be abstinent. The first few weeks were hard, but I used the tools, talking with my sponsor every day, doing the assignments and discussing the readings, making outreach calls, attending meetings, listening to podcasts in any free time I had, journaling, reading the literature. I decided I was going to come all the way in and sit all the way down. We started reading the big book in the AA 12 and 12. We had frequent contact, and I was eager to do whatever she asked me. Days started turning into weeks, and as we got through the first few chapters of the big book, we worked step one. We shared a lot about how the role of food was playing in my life and just how much it dominated me. I was powerless. I started to see my disease had permeated into every area of my life. 
And then we got to step two. Well, no, the second part of step one, my life was unmanageable. It was hard for me to comprehend this. I was a wife, a mom. I was on the PTA. I paid my bills on time. I was financially stable. I had many achievements personally, academically, and program related. But she encouraged me to look within my disease of mind, that peculiar mental twist. On page six of Bill's story, he says, the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window. And that was me. The physical and mental torture was so hellish. My fear was that I was going to lose my sobriety or commit suicide. Step two, came to believe. My sponsor and I looked at my old ideas about God and made a list of new ideas just like I'd heard in Bill's story on page 12. When Ebby suggested the novel idea, why don't you choose your own conception of God? It was a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required. She had me list on one side of a piece of paper all the attributes I wanted my higher power to have. And on the other side of the paper, all the attributes that were no longer serving me. At the end of this practice, we ripped the paper in half, leaving only the attributes that served me. You know, qualities that were included on this, um, that my, my higher power is parental. Uh, for me, a parent is very nurturing. He's tender. He has sweet surprises for me. Um, and I took things off like he's keeping score or he's out to get me. We looked at the step two proposition. God either is or isn't. What was my choice to be? We specifically looked at areas in my life where I was not willing to give my higher power. My marriage, my daughter, my relationship with my sister. Then we made a list of what God wants me to be. He wants me to be grateful. He wants me to be charitable. He wants me to be faithful. One of the practices my sponsor asked me was to write how I was practicing my agnosticism. And as I pondered this, I thought, well, I'm not agnostic. And then she told me, how are you practicing that you're not agnostic? That riveted me. Step three, when I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, from the work I had done thus far, I was at a place of believing I was insane. And again, seeking a new experience, I would pray that set-aside prayer. My sponsor asked me to do this third-step prayer in person at an AA group or other 12-step group. And so that's what I did. I had been in AA for 18 years at this time, and I had never seen anyone do a public declaration. I was nervous. It felt odd. But when it was my turn to share, they set the three-minute timer, and I got on my knees, and I said that third-step prayer. It was a powerful demonstration for me, and later I would come to find out for others of the willingness to seek God and to make a public declaration of my third step. And since then, several other members have done it in my group. When we got to the fourth step, 
I had a lot of hesitation. I was not wanting to do the work. This was one of my biggest hang-ups when coming to yet another 12-step program. But God had made a way for me. Starting the fourth step, we were also starting a huge home rent model. While my house was being turned into a work zone, I was getting up every day, working on my list, listening to the meetings, and taking all my nervous energy and throwing myself into recovery at all times. Eventually, we had to move out of the house for about three weeks. We moved to a hotel, and my routine would go like this. I would get up and have some time for writing. I'd get my daughter ready for school, drop her off, go to the work site, check on things, and go back to the hotel. It was a small hotel with a tiny area for writing. And I sat and I wrote that fourth step. I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I can see now that it was probably God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I'm so easily distracted that God gave me the opportunity to sit in those four walls and have no distraction just to write. Once I finished my fourth step, it took maybe two to three weeks. My sponsor and I set up a time to meet. We spent several hours sharing. She would remind me that her job was to witness my inventory. When we got to step six and seven, I made a list of the character defects. Perfectionism was one of the big ones. But then we would go deeper. You know, why do I have this? Well, I put so much value on others' ability to perform, it became a truth for me to uphold. I started seeing how these very rigid ideas came to me and then I would have to withhold them within myself. Another defect was living in fear of what people think of me. I was always darting around searching for signs that I would be approved. I was seeking validation all the time. Another was control. I controlled everything. How my daughter did everything, how she ate when she bathed which is appropriate for a kid, but that's also how I controlled my husband and my family and my friends. And I was always giving unsolicited advice and constantly saying one thing and then changing my mind over and over. Steps eight and nine, I made a list and started making amends. Many on my list were living amends, but one in particular was my sister. I had our relationship all over my fourth step, and when I went to make amends to her, I was very open about the work I was doing in program. When she asked what I can do, when I asked what I can do to make things right, she shared how all these years she just wanted to be a part of my life, part of my journey. She loves me so much and so fiercely. I had such a hard time receiving her love. It's taken time, but now we talk one or two times a week. And we get real with each other. And I'm finding myself being as transparent with her as I would a recovery sister. Our relationship has flourished. The amends to my husband, the process of writing really helped me to see 
that I had all the ideas and notions about what a husband was supposed to do in a marriage based on my own life experiences. I wanted someone to take care of me the perfect way. And when he didn't act accordingly, I felt unloved, bitter, and resentful. Through the process, I'm beginning to see he, like me, is sick and human and doing the best as he can with what he has. I asked him this morning while we were having coffee, what has changed over the last two years? His first response was, well, everything. And then when I asked him a little more, he said, well, the biggest thing is I have so many things to worry about, but you're no longer one of them. Wow. He also liked to say that now when I'm in the bathroom too long, he knows I'm not in there throwing up, but that I just eat a lot of produce. A little obsessive compulsive overeater humor there for you. Getting to step 10, 11, and 12, ones that we call the maintenance steps, um, has been what it's been like for the last year and a half. Step 10 says I continue to take personal inventory and when wrong, promptly admitted it. The word that sticks out there for me is continued. Uh, It's a continuation. It's never ending. Somewhere in my previous recovery, I thought I would get to this point of stopping or things are so good, I can stop the work now. What I'm finding now is that things can always be better. And the more I continue to work on me, the more what my world begins to get bigger. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Again, the word seek and the word and. First, seek. I'm going to seek through prayer and meditation. Um, And it, again, reminds me of the word continue. It doesn't say, you know, pray for a year. Once you get a year abstinent, you can stop or, uh, you know, but it's this continuation. Um, And then the word and, you know, for so long I would do prayer or meditation, but it specifically says and meditation. Um, And I yoke the two together to bring in that conscious contact with my higher power. And then step 12, having had a spiritual experience is the result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I do this with sponsorship, calls, my face-to-face meetings, sharing with others, and practicing my faith. One thing I cannot end this talk without mentioning is an email I sent to my family that um, stated the March 7th. Um, so it was shortly, about a month and a week after I came into program. I'd never done anything like this in my life before either. So my husband thought I'd lost my marbles. It was just a short email. It says, hey guys, it's been a while since I've emailed you. So let me know if you receive this so I can make sure I've got the right emails. I would like to request you guys to start praying chanting, holding space, whatever you choose to do every day at noon, if you don't mind. I would specifically like to ask that you ask for the expansion of our family. 
yes, you're hearing me right. I want you guys to pray for me every day at noon and ask that God enlarge my family, whatever that might look like. I know this sounds kooky, but I've had it in my mind to ask you guys, and I just can't seem to drop it. So join me, please, every day at noon, praying, chanting, holding space, whatever appeals to you. Also, is there anything I can be praying for you specifically? Please let me know. Otherwise, I will gladly lift you all up in prayer at noon as you pray for me and my family. Love you all, Becca. When I got to step 11, it was July. Um, I'd been in program about six months. And um, I was working really intensely with um, my sponsor. And, and by this time, I think I had started sponsoring and I got a call from my husband that would result in um, a whirlwind of events over the next few days. And uh, it was a call saying that a baby had been born and would we be interested in adopting. And that little baby is asleep still in his crib in my house. And he's ours. And it was a beautiful amazing story but that's not what this story that I'm telling you today is about but the power of prayer had worked and it's still working it was a huge testament to me of the power of faith of the power of practicing my faith and surrounding myself with people who want the best for me In closing, I want to thank you guys for listening. (laughs) And I just wanted to read out of page 89, Working with Others. And this really sums up what my life is like today. It says, life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Thank you for asking me to share today. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Becca, for telling your remarkable and inspiring story to all of us this morning. Truly beautiful testimony. Thank you very much. Today's share ID, 14,258. That's 14258 for the presentation this morning. Becca R.'s contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your first name as well as the initial of your last name. Ginger C. Ginger. Dorita P. Dorita. Jody E. Jody E. Jen A. Jen A. Barbara E. Barbara E. Got you. Who did I miss back there? Kathy K. Kathy K. Lindsay H. Lindsay H. Santa. Santa H. 
Shondell. Shondell, your initial, please. G. Yes, Santa, have you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, let me tell you who I have. I have Ginger C, Dorita P, Jody E, Jen A, Barbara E, Kathy K, Lindsay H, Santa H, and Shondell D. That's a great group. Everybody, please mute except for Ginger C. Go ahead, Ginger. Hello, good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service. And Becca, what a beautiful story. Thank you so much for being with us this morning and opening your heart to all of us. And um, I'm just curious, you know, abstinence obviously is very important, um, but you also mentioned throughout your story a lot of behaviors, um, purging, scales and weighing, and exercising, over-exercising. So how did that, did it all get down at once, or how did that unfold? I just um, have been working with a lot of people in this area, and would love your experience, strength, and hope around those behaviors that were also a problem as much as the food and the overeating. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Ginger. It's um, It was definitely a process, and one of my sponsor's favorite things to say to me is, um, how free do you want to be? And more will be revealed. (laughs) And so in the beginning, it meant putting down the obvious, you know, I know the, the foods that were not good for me. I looked at the phenomenon of craving, but then it was like the obvious, like, okay, I know I can't run a marathon a week like that. That's crazy. Um, but doing yoga a few times a week, that just seemed a little opposite extreme. (laughs) So it was a process. Um, and I was in recovery and still using laxatives and, and, um, you know, I wasn't using them every day and it was just if I hadn't gone to the bathroom, you know, a week. And, and finally I fessed up to my sponsor. I said, should I be doing this? And she said, you know, no, you shouldn't. And, um, after about a month in, I was telling her about my obsessiveness with my fitness pal and she said stop it and I was like oh like like today you want me to stop today oh okay and um and still more has been revealed and I think just that continuing and that seeking um what what would God have me be and really looking at how I want to show up in my life hope that helps thanks thank you Ginger Dorita P., your turn. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And thank you, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the speaker's name, but thank you so much for your share. And I got on late. I think I'm going to listen to the whole thing a little later today. Um, But my question is, um, when you um, did the third step prayer at a meeting, I'm just curious because I I did it before uh, when I led or spoke uh, at a meeting. And I was just kind of demonstrating how I pray, uh, and I, you know, the third prayer is my favorite prayer. So I was just wondering, uh, when you said it publicly, was it at a meeting that um, was on the third step? I mean, the topic was the third step, or you just did it at any meeting? That's a great question. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, I- at the meeting I attend, it's a it's a women's meeting, and it was a very sacred place for me. So when my sponsor asked me to do this, as nervous as it was, because I had never heard of anyone doing that, um, I knew exactly where I would do it. And we, we have a timekeeper similar to our phone meetings, and, you know, each person gets three minutes. And so I just kind of shared 
where I was at um, and that I was working the steps. I was on the third step. And would you guys um, allow me to, to say the third step prayer? And of course they, they all, you know, said, of course, yes, sure. And, um, and so I got down in the middle of the group. We met at this small church in this little room and, and it was a circular group. And I got down in the middle on my knees and um, I didn't know what it was going to look like. But when I started saying the words, they started saying it with me. And uh, it, it definitely will always be a, a beautiful memory of um, of taking that public declaration with uh, those women. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dorita P., for the question. Jody E., your turn. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much, Becca R., for your story and your experience, strength, and hope. What a beautiful testimony. You mentioned body dysmorphia disorder, and I'm wondering how that changed, has changed throughout your recovery and how you feel about how you look today, and if that has changed, when did it start to change? Thank you. Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so in the beginning, as I um, began the steps, I had just so much of um, that negative self-talk constantly. And I had to combat that with something. And I, I'd used the food for a long time and the diet and the exercise and all the obsessive things. And um, what I did was I just consumed myself with program. Because if I was talking to you or listening to this or being on this meeting or going to a meeting, it was a reprieve from the mental gymnastics in my head. Um, and I'm so grateful for the old timers who would, who would, not let me just ramble and ruminate on and on and on about me, uh, but really direct me into um, recovery, into the solution, into the book, into things um, to read or to listen to. And I can say today, uh, body dysmorphia is so far away from me. Um, one of one of the things that I would just obsessively do is anytime we would be on vacation. I would just watch every woman that would walk in front of me and I would ask whoever was sitting next to me, my family, my husband, my sisters, my mom, or whoever was there, you know, is she skinnier than me? Is she fatter than me? Do my boobs look like that? Do my arms jiggle like that? Does my butt look like that? I was obsessed. And um, it is so beautiful to go to the beach and to go to the pool and to look at all the people and just you know, I learned it here, you know, to look at all God's children and come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors, and we're all children of God. Um, I will will add, you know, the body dysmorphia is always more present around my menstrual cycle, and it's just going to be like that, and, uh, and sometimes I have some affirmations I will say. You know, and I do track my cycle for that reason, so I can know. Oh, okay, it's you know, of course, of course, you're feeling dysmorphic. It's you're you're PMSing, um, and lo and behold, usually a week goes by, and and I'm back, and I'm comfortable in my own skin. 
I do a lot of writing. I use the tools and talking to other women and, um, you know, just really leaning into God and trusting. But I can say that the dysmorphia is so much removed um, other than than sometimes creeping up around PMS. Thank you, God, because it was just such another form of um, selfishness for me to be completely consumed with me. And I always thought selfishness meant that I thought more of myself. And since I thought so less of myself around my disease, that I wasn't selfish, but I was. I mean, I was still completely consumed with me. Thank you for the question. Thank you, Becca, for the answer. Yes, thanks so much, Jody E., for your question. Jen A., your turn. Becca, good morning. Thank you so much for um, sharing how God's handiwork is really, really, really relevant in your life today. And I'm so grateful um, to have a soul sister like you in this program who's experienced, um, and I can literally say we mirror each other. So, so grateful that you're sharing your story today. Um, The question I have for you is um, reintroducing um, as compulsive overeaters, anorexics, and bulimics, it's been my experience that we restrict so much. We restrict good food. We restrict good behaviors, things like that. I'm just wondering if in your journey um, what your experience has been with reintroducing a little bit of body movement, exercise. Um, you know, you spoke to the fact of, you know, you could even eat good things, right? And, and I know that to be true, too. So I'm wondering if you could just share your experience around that, if if that's been the case. Thanks, Jen. That's a good question. All of these are such good questions. Um, yeah, I have reintroduced um, several things, uh, food-wise and exercise-wise, and you know, a lot of it, a lot of the activity is, um, you know, my sponsor would always say, "What are your motives? Check your motives." And I can do the same thing that I did in a in my disease state, in my active addictiveness to food and over exercise. I can do those same things now with with, but with a clean motive. And um, one example is, you know, I shared about being a distance runner, and uh, you know, I just blew my knees out. And, you know, I was so adrenal fatigued from all the running, um, and when I came into program, running felt like such a trigger, um, and I started walking, and, I, and you know, that's my form of exercise, is I enjoy walking my dogs a couple times, Yeah, well, five five or six times a week if it's sunny, but it's been a lot of rain here in Kentucky, so, um, but a few years ago, my daughter joined a running club, and they asked for parent volunteers, and she asked me if I would do it, you know, she remembered my running days, and um, and I was able, to, I'm, I'm able to run again and I'm not running the distance I'm, I'm running, you know, really short, slow paces, but it, it's no longer a trigger for me. Um, I also, um, reintroduced the little buzzing feature on my Apple watch that will tell me when I've hit these, um, particular goals like how long I've been how many hours I've stood a day and uh, how many minutes I've moved actively that day 
And in the beginning, that was a huge trigger for me because I was so obsessed with, you know, burning a thousand calories and um, having, you know, 600 minutes of activity. That's an exaggeration, but, um, you know, and so for a long time, I had to disable that feature because it was just something else for me to obsess with. Um, and uh, honestly, I just, I just got a new watch and the feet, I just never disabled it. Um, I can say that the, the goals are uh, very, very realistic for anybody. So. And then with the food, um, there were a few times I travel a lot. And so uh, just here in the last six months, I spoke with my sponsor about adding in some, some fruits that um, had always been on a on my red light list because I had abused him so much with binging and purging, particularly bananas. And, you know, just like any decision, I, I went through it with the guide of my sponsor and with prayer. And I also use a nutritionist. And um, the funny thing was, is that, you know, we decided um, and I took it to God and, and, and I felt good. I, I uh, reintroduced some foods, um, but still they're not real active in my life. Uh, they are something that I see frequent when I'm traveling and it's easy to, uh, you know, grab one and go, but um, for my day-to-day use, I'm still not really utilizing them. I hope that helps. Thanks, Jen, for the question. Barbara E., star one to unmute. Good morning, everyone. And Leah, as usual, thank you so much for your ongoing service. But Becca, you touched the inner ear of my heart. From the minute you said those prayers at the beginning, which I would love for you to repeat, and your soft voice and your honesty just really touched me. My my question, other than to ask you kindly to repeat those opening prayers, is how do you do a 10-step? There are so many different ways. My step sponsor initially said if I'm truly connected to God, I don't need to do it with another person. I can go directly to God. But somehow as the years progressed and I listened to the meeting, it started to feel that I wasn't really digging deep enough. And so many people insert so many prayers in their 10th step um, that I personally enjoy hearing, but I don't necessarily feel for myself that I need to say except for what would God want me to be and the sick man's prayer. So I would love to hear those opening prayers again, if you don't mind, and how you do a 10th step. Thank you so much again. Thanks for the question, Barbara. I'd be happy to share those, uh, the, the set of sad prayers specifically in the little meditation that my sponsor does with me before we um, ever talk, as, and especially <laughs> before I ever do a 10th step with her. She loves to remind me that we've got to invite God in. Um, And I'll give my contact info, and you can give me a call, and I would be happy to share those with you. As far as 10 steps go, I'm a perfectionist, and so I really hesitated to do the 10 steps because I thought that, first of all, I needed to sit down and 
you know, have a half hour of writing and then call the perfect person and then have, you know, the whole agenda of I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say this prayer and then I'm going to say this and I'm going to ask them if they have any feedback. And that just seemed like it was way too much. But my experience is, is what happened is I would get into enough pain that I would call and God would provide the right person to call or I would make all the calls and no one would answer and then the person God wanted me to talk to would call back. And um, it began with just being very vulnerable. I've not done 10 steps. Can you help me? Can you walk through this? I've got a fear or um, I'm really mad at my husband right now. I've done so many 10 steps on my husband. And I still um, rely on God for a lot of my 10 steps uh, and, and taking them to God. Uh, the part of the book that says, you know, at some point we're going to have nobody uh, and we're going to have to go to our higher power. It's just going to be me and my higher power. Now, that is not usually the case. You know, usually have access to my mobile device and I can um, have a world of recovered people at my fingertips. But I've also found that sometimes people don't answer the phone. It's crazy how many people I will call and, and nobody's able to take the call at the time. And so I have learned a practice of, of going through, okay, what am I resentful at? You know, why do I have this resentment? How is it affecting me? Um, and then I just, I, I can't help but hear my sponsor's voice saying, these are sick, wounded animals or people. <laughs> but, but thinking like, you know, you wouldn't treat a sick and wounded person like that, you know, and it just helps me to have compassion. My sponsor has been such a, a help of, um, enabling me to have the tools uh, and I'm not saying I don't do 10 steps I surely do but uh, the smaller things that happen more day-to-day -day annoyances um, specifically with my family you know I can I can get to that last column and and say you know what is my part and and immediately get into the solution now if it keeps eating my lunch haha -ha, little OA humor um, I will make an outreach call and I still, I still don't do it perfect. And I'll say, can you help, can you help me with this 10 step? Uh, I really need to get some clarity here. You know, can you help me get to the fourth column? I, I, I'm having a hard time seeing my part. Um, but yeah, I have to be really careful because I'm such a perfectionist and, um, if I can't do it perfect, I don't want to do it. So I hope that helps, and um, I look forward to talking to you privately, too, Barbara. Thank you, Barbara E. Kathy Kay, you're up. Thank you, Leah, for your continuing service. And, Becca, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I, I've gotten a lot out of it. Um, my question for you is, could you say a little bit more about what you do on a daily basis to live in steps 10, 11, and 12. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Again, it's a great one. Um, my days usually start before my kids get up. My, my son is now 19 months old and my daughter's nine. 
And that's my go time. It's I've always been an early riser, so I like to get up and um, and go to my office and uh, and do some writing and get some connection through writing. I, I like to write uh, my prayers, um, and then my kids get up and my husband gets up, and I just try to you know, feed them with, with love and uh, the same love that my higher power gives to me, I try to transmit to them. And I do, I do say to myself, like, okay, God, you know, what's today going to look like? And just like there's different seasons of life, you know, the seasons I've had in my short two years of recovery have, have changed. And, you know, sometimes it's being really, really active in the phone meetings. Sometimes it's being really, really active in my face-to-face meetings. Sometimes it's being really active with outreach calls. Sometimes I'm traveling with my family, and I'm just really, really active with them. Um, and so I, I try not to get into this place of I have to do A, B, and C every day. I know for me, outreach calls, quiet time, prayer and meditation, that connection with other people who are doing the deal, um, which means they are working the 12 steps way of life. Those things are really important to me. I feel good when I'm doing those things. Um, And again, I can't get so rigid that if I don't do them, I start having that self-loathing. But yeah, I I try to try to set up uh, ways to be accountable when I'm traveling. Um, My family travels a lot. And so, you know, being on different time zones or being in different countries or not having access to Wi-Fi or not Wi-Fi, but um, phone calls, you know, again, the little cell phones we have are so, so great to be connected to one another and to um, just have all kinds of like safety networks to, um, to plug into. And recently, this was amazing. I had a friend in recovery who was traveling abroad and was not going to have Wi-Fi or a cell phone. And she asked for me to write her a letter in an email, and she was going to print them out and read them each day she was abroad. And I thought, wow, that's genius. You know, we can recover no matter what. And, um, and so that's another little tool I'll use should I ever be placed in that um, particular situation. I hope that helps. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for your question. Lindsay H., your turn. Star one on mute. Thank you so much for sharing your story from the moment you started talking. Um, I could so connect, and that's why I love hearing speakers. Um, Two people already took my question, um, and I'm kind of glad that they did because it gave me such hope when you talked about um, the body dysmorphia disorder. Um, I'm in my first year of recovery, and I have hope sometimes, and other times I think to myself, you know, are these self-loathing thoughts ever going to go away? Um, But I had to think of a new question, um, and I also um, suffer from the exercise bulimia part of this disease, and um, I loved how you shared that this was a fluid um, in your recovery. It had to be fluid. Um, I wanted to get a food plan and an exercise plan and have that be, you know, it and the marry it for the rest of my life. And I'm learning this year that it's 
me learning what works and what doesn't work. So um, right now, I think my food plan's where it needs to be, um, but I'm still kind of playing around with exercise and and what works best for my body and what's you know triggering and what's not. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about your journey um, with your exercise. I know you did a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to. So when I, before I came into recovery and program, I I was seeing a therapist and um, the exercise bulimia was really, really bad. And she kept telling me, try yoga or, you know, try, try this, this many days a week. And I just thought that was insane. Like I, I cannot eat like this and only exercise like that. That will, that's not an equal equation. Um, And so, you know, from the minute I came into program, uh, you know, just seeking that new experience and saying to myself, if I want something new, I have to do something new. And putting that faith and reliance on my higher power, like, God, I know you don't want me at the gym, you know, hours a day, missing out on my family. Uh, And so in the beginning, it was limiting you know, having some restrictions on, on my gym time, you know, I'd go three days a week for an hour. Um, and, and it's, it's come and go, it's wax and waned. I've done some other programs. Um, and today what it looks like is I very rarely go to the gym. I find joy in walking my dogs and being outside and listen, that's when I do a lot of my outreach and uh, listening to meetings and stuff is on my walks. And uh, I like to bring my kids, too. And um, uh, I know for me, uh, one of my truths is I feel better. Like mentally, I feel better when I'm moving every day. But in the beginning, it was really hard because for so long I got so much validation of my worthiness if only if I exercise that day. And so that transition period of learning how to sit on those days of not exercising and still being okay. Um, And it's one of those things that didn't happen overnight. Um, And I weigh, I will say I weigh myself once a month. Um, And so, you know, by seeing the evidence, (laughs) uh, I'm very scientific. So to see the evidence of, okay, I've cut my exercise 50% and my weight is still stable. Okay, I've cut my exercise, you know, 50 more percent and my weight is still stable. Okay, I haven't I haven't formally exercised in months and my weight is still stable. And then it just opened up. My, my world got so much bigger, you know. I would skip out on play dates. I would skip out on family things just to go to the gym because I, I had to do this or I had to, you know, I, I was – I would go to the things, but I wouldn't be there because I'd be out running 10 miles. Um, and so my world has gotten so much bigger now that that's gone. But it was definitely um, a process. And like I said, I still love to move my body. And and my preference is now, you know, a, a two-mile walk with my dogs um, every day if it's possible. But like I said, it's been raining for what seems like weeks. So <laughs> thanks. Thank you, Lindsay H. Santa H., your turn. Good morning, my fellows, and Becca, thank you so much for sharing with us. 
beautiful story, uh, amazing story, rather. Um, I have a question about your childhood and young adult experiences. When I was hearing you at the beginning of your story, it was really tugging my heart. And um, as you look back on those experiences, can you share with us um, what are you grateful for about those childhood experiences as you look as you look back on them, reflect. That's my question. Thank you for the question. Wow, that just really took my breath away. What um, what a good question. I have got so much compassion for my mom and my dad um, raising me and my siblings uh, when they did and how they did and doing the very best that they could um, with what they had. And especially as a wife and a mom myself now, um, just looking at, at all the good that they did instead of focusing on all the mistakes they made, there was so much good. And my experience is um, part of my getting sober and Alcoholics Anonymous was my mother had joined a 12-step program called Al-Anon for families of alcoholics and uh, and really started my recovery in that sense. And um, it the 12 steps just permeates every area of my family now. Um, and, and the compulsive overeating recovery as well. You know, we're very, I'm very transparent with my family. Um, it's a, it's a truth that I seek to, um, live a life of authenticity with them and be vulnerable with them. And, um, and honestly, it just comes up when you start weighing and measuring and packing all your food. <laughs> but um, there's so much beauty in my, my family now. And we, we talk about our childhood. And um, that's something my sister and I have really bonded over is to, to talk about things um, and to look at how we perceived them. And then, and then we look at them from our adult selves now versus our kids' selves. And, uh, and I just have so much compassion. Um, my parents suffered a really nasty divorce with um, an affair and um, just really heartbreaking stuff. And uh, that was years ago. And the last few years, we we go on family vacations together. My mom and dad are very good friends. They both have remarried. And my dad has a, another child with his wife. Um but it is just one big happy family. And I know that it sounds so cliche to say that, and I know that's not everybody's story, but that's my story. And my thought is that that is a direct result of the power of the steps and bringing God into the equation. Um, and it looks different for, for some of my family members who are uh, more atheist or um, more spiritual than uh, religious believers, but, uh, we definitely gather around at Thanksgiving and see all the good that has um, come from all the heartache. And I, um, I do I have a tender place for that little girl that I was um, in my heart, and I can look at her and you know just kind of touch touch my own chest of my heart and just you know kind of pat that little girl and say. You know, you did the best you could. I was 
I, I did the best I could with what I had. And um, I'm so grateful now to have my adult self and see that, that the adults in my life were doing the best that they could with what they had. Thanks. Thank you, Santa H., for the question. Shondell, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Shondell. Thank you. That's Shondell G. Thank you, Becca, so much for your qualification. I, too, as a middle child and the body dysmorphia, running miles to out-exercise uh, the food. But I, I suspect that my parents did the best they could, even though I struggle with my family right now, and I struggle with um, my parents thinking maybe they failed me. But worst of all is that I was raised in an organized religion, and I feel like God's also um, betrayed me. So my question for you has been answered, but I have another one here. I really want to get in touch with uh, God, whoever the higher power is. I do believe in God. But I'm struggling with just getting started, getting a grip on it. Um, Is there any suggestions that can help me rely on a higher power so that I can get out of the food fog? Wow. Um, yeah, my suggestion would be to get a sponsor. And and just for me, I just had to pray for the willingness to do what I had never done before. And there was so much fear putting down the exercise, putting on the, down the calorie counting. Putting, but as I was able to do those things with the help of God, my sponsor was quick to remind me that, you know, I can't do them on my own, but with the help of a God, and I would see God working in these small areas of just, oh, wow, I haven't um, over-exercised in a few weeks. That, that has to be a God thing because I couldn't do that on my own. Or, wow, I haven't had Splenda in, you know, 20 days. That has to be a God thing because Lord knows I tried to do that. Um, or the night eating. Oh, my goodness. When I realized, wow, I haven't night eaten in weeks. That has to be a God thing. You know, if I could see God working in these small areas around my food, then it was like almost like an experiment. Like, I'm going to see if God will work here at this part of my life with this area. And I would slowly begin to surrender things um, and then some really big things like the arrival of my son. And, um, and and just see the miracles that are going on. And when things don't happen according to my time, I can uh, rest in the, the faith that my higher power is going to take care of me. And that when things don't turn out my way, it's usually because there's something bigger and better in store. And so, you know, just for me, it was just praying for the willingness for a new experience and to do what I'd never done before. I mean, one of my favorite sayings is I was the know-it guy, the know-it-all, you know. I, I knew everything. I knew I needed to get a sponsor. I knew I needed to work. I knew I needed to get a food plan. I know, I know, I know. But I wasn't doing any of it. I, I wasn't doing it. 
you know, I had this head full of knowledge, but I wasn't taking any action. And that's what was different with this recovery is God graced me with the willingness to do it. And it was scary and it was unfamiliar and it was uncharted, but I did it one day at a time. I put my hands in your all's hands and I trusted what I heard and, um, and it worked. It worked. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Shondell G. We have time for perhaps three more questions. Are there other Irene. 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 I didn't catch the next name. Toby W. Toby W. Penny C. Penny C. Excellent. That makes three. Irene B., go right ahead. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. And, Becca, what a powerful, powerful, unbelievable talk. You have reached my heart. Unfortunately, I jumped in late, but fortunately early enough that maybe you can uh, answer my question. And I have so many of them. I don't know where to begin, but you spoke a little bit about your internal self-talk and your perfectionism and everything that you've talked about, Dito, Dito, yep, 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 done that, done that, done that. I am Irene B., a gratefully recovering bulimic in Latin Rouge, Louisiana. So my question is about um, how did you become aware of your internal self-talk and, talk, and, and you refer to it most about your body, but did it extend to other parts of your life? I just want to learn how to overcome my self-hatred from not being enough. Thank you. Thank you. That that was just one of the many plagues of this disease that I was so consumed with um, the self-hatred and self-loathing. And I can say I am free from that today. Um and what that looks like, I think, is just a whole lot of recovery uh, lingo comes up in my head. Do the next right thing. When all else fails, work with another alcoholic. Uh, turn your face to God. Turn my face to service. All these little sayings I've heard over and over in my recovery support groups and my sponsorship groups. And, um you know, there's there's stuff going on right now that I'm really, really nervous. And I don't know what the future is going to be. And I don't know what it's going to be like with with the things that are going on right now. And I find myself kind of getting wrapped up in that cyclone of what ifs and uh, what am I going to do? And and I just stop. I take a big breath. And I think, you know, God, how can I be of service? What is the next right thing to do? You know, and yesterday that was, you know, making some outreach calls, but talking with my nine-year-old about what the next four weeks are going to look like for us. Um, You know, we're going to have school at home. And uh, instead of catastrophizing, you know, the dreaded weight and, you know, just everything going on, I'm taking it one day at a time. I'm just, I'm thinking of all these little sayings and, um I know my broken brain can't fix my broken brain and I have to reach out to my fellows who one of my spiritual leaders calls gods with skin on, um, reach out to my fellows and just, um, just show up for today to show up for right now. Um, and 
yeah, I'm, I'm so I'm so grateful to have program, especially right now with with um, the things that are going on for so many people, not just me. But thanks, I pass. Thanks, Irene B. Toby W. Star one to unmute. Thank you, Leia, and thank you, Jeff. Oh, my God, I really got so much out of it. What I would like, though, is you mentioned... Okay, let me take it off the speaker. Um, You mentioned um, that you did, at the beginning, you list attributes, and you talked about a few other things, and I didn't catch it all. Could you go back and repeat? What you did at the beginning when you was also listing the attributes, what else did you do? Sure. So I took just a sheet of notebook paper and folded it in half, um, what my kindergarten teacher would have said, hot dog style. And on the left, I put traits or attributes for my higher power. And on the right, I put things that are no longer working. And I can't tell you what the right said because at the end of this practice, I I ripped off the right side in in my folder or in my notebook. I've just got the traits that are serving me left. And I started with, what, probably 15 traits. Um, And I've added. It's it's neat because there's different colored pen and pencil of um, new traits that I have for my higher power, you know, that I've added along – the years and uh it was such an act of like physically ripping the paper throwing it away like those no longer serve me this idea that my higher power is keeping score no longer serves me um i've got a higher power who is tender who cherishes me who's gentle who's unintimidating who's kind loving thoughtful friendly always available, sends me surprises, knows me completely, omnipotent, courteous, parental with their love. Those are the traits that I want to see. Those are the ones that I have written down in my notebook. All those negative traits that no longer serve me, they're gone. And so when I forget that and when I think, oh, shoot, God's keeping score, I go back to these traits and I have to remember, no, remember you got rid of those. God is no longer keeping score. He never was, but it's um, it was a powerful practice for me uh, to do that. Thanks. Thank you, Toby W. Our final question for the day comes from Penny C. Thank you, Leah, and thank you so much, Becca. This is Penny C., and I'm very happy to say we covered in uh, the Boston area, and um, oh gosh, um, it touched me when you talked about the um, the adoption of your little son. Congratulations! My question is around the idea of um, emailing your your family and asking them to pray at noon every day. Um, sounds like a great idea. Would you talk more about? Uh, how extensive uh, your list of people that you sent that email to, and also about their reaction um, to your request. Thank you. 
Thanks for the question, Penny. Yes, I sent it. Um, so I sent it to all my brothers and sister and my mom and dad. And at first, I didn't send it to my husband. <laughs> I thought he was going to think I'd lost my mind, which he kind of did. Um, but a, a few days later, I sent it to him. And um, I've always had a, a fairly open relationship with my family as far as my AA sobriety and recovery has gone. Um, as most of you can probably relate, the eating stuff was so so hidden and secretive. Um, although they all knew it, they can all recall instances from my childhood of oh, this was probably your eating disorder manifesting. But once I came into recovery and just began to be transparent, well, first with my husband and then my parents and then my sister, and it kind of trickled into my brothers, um, I just felt very moved with their love and their support. And it, it they were not um, suffocating me with, like, what can I do to help, but just their consistently showing up um, and asking those hard questions, you know, that before um, they wouldn't have known whether or not, you know, it was like walking on eggshells, you know, is she on a diet? Is she off a diet? Is she going to get mad if I ask? Is she, you know, and so uh, we just started cultivating this new relationship of, of kindness and uh, love and um, and showing up in a way that we had never really done before that was just so authentic and pure. And so when it came to my mind, the power of prayer, and it, it was almost like an experiment, like I want to see if this really works. You know, who's going to pray for you like your siblings are going to pray for you? That was That was what I asked myself because I know they love me. They love me. My parents love me. They want what's best for me. If I wanted to enlarge my family, they wanted that for me too. And so it occurred to me, like, no one is going to really pray for you. Like, these people will pray for you. And so that's what started it. And um, it was, like I said, I can't reiterate this enough. Like, this was totally out of the norm for me. Um, and and when I shared with my husband a few days following what I had done, he was very quiet, and he was like, oh, okay. And then I shared him with him the email. And I, this this morning while we were having coffee, um, we, we talked a little bit about that. And he said, you know, I really thought you had lost your mind. It, it was so out of character for you. Um, but that's what recovery has been like for me. It has made me a new character where I'm no longer living like an agnostic but I'm living like a woman who believes and has a relationship with a higher power that is the number one um, precedence in my life and that's amazing that's amazing to even be able to say that but that's that's what the my recovery has given me thanks for the question Yes, thank you, Penny C., and thanks to everybody who posed questions today. And, of course, thank you so much, Becca, for giving so much of yourself, your generous spirit this morning, and sharing your remarkable, incredible story of transformation as a result of these 12 steps and a relationship with 
power. Thank you very much. Again, the share ID for today's presentation, 14,258. That's 14258. We're going to close the way we always close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.